Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior. Welcome back. I'm so glad that you're joining us. If you're new here, well, I really appreciate you giving us a chance to earn your attention and lending us your ears. And the only non-renewable resource you've got, that of course is your time. Today's entrepreneur won't waste that for you. He's been slaving away with us here in uh, the solar industry, on the solar coaster, as it were, for a couple of decades. Michael Orshan has seen a few economic revolutions from the rise of distributed computing to high-speed telecommunications, and now many years leaning into the energy transition. He's VP of sales for the solar tracker company known as PVH or PV Hardware here in North America. He's also a board member for Breeze. That is one company you will want to hear more about. The company has IP to generate electricity, releasing compressed air from idle oil and gas pipelines to the turbines. Stick around to hear more. Michael's goal has always been to bring new technology to the public. And he spent a ton of time working on that with companies like AT&T and Fujitsu. In fact, he was also the head of science and technology appointed by then Governor Richardson in New Mexico. You may recognize Governor Richardson as President Clinton's Secretary of Energy. And uh, Michael's been around the block pioneering some of the early solar laws and projects. Today, I'm going to pull back the veil on how he made the various career decisions and uh, pivots that he has made, along with some of the things that he has been personally involved in that have, in fact, pioneered and changed the way our industry works. I hope that you are loving these kinds of conversations, and as a result, you've subscribed to the show. Super easy to do that in Spotify or Apple uh, iTunes. Uh, but wherever you are, if you would take three seconds, please, to just subscribe to the show or follow the show, you can always find more than 550 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice just like this one at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Hey there, Solar Warrior. Welcome back. We are having a lot of fun here as we venture into 2023, going down into the rabbit hole with entrepreneurs who've had a ton of experience in multifaceted careers. Now they're applying that to the clean energy transition, joining us in the clean energy revolution. If you're new here, welcome. Thank you for giving us the one thing that we can't give you back, and that is your time, chance to earn your attention. We're so honored. Hope that we give you a great return on it. Today's entrepreneur is someone I have been introduced to very recently, again, by a dear friend, Tigercom's Mike Casey. Mike is super connected to these kinds of people, if it isn't obvious. Uh, Mr. Michael Orshan has seen his share of economic revolutions from the rise of distributed computing to high-speed telecommunications and now energy. We're going to talk about some of the interesting ways that he is disrupting or considering how to disrupt the energy sector. He is also the VP of sales for the solar tracker vendor PV Hardware or PVH here in North America, better known as the Iberian Steel Manufacturer. And he's a board member for a company we'll talk about called Breeze. There are some really fascinating concepts that Michael is both exploring and funding. We're going to get into all that from compressed air and stranded oil and gas pipelines to how to improve the CNI and distributed generation sector in the United States. Go all the way back to his days at AT&T and $6 billion worth of business that he organized overnight, essentially, and more. I hope that you will stick around for this entire conversation. It really is one worth paying attention to. I also hope that you'll subscribe to the show after you've given us a listen, as that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice-weekly content just like this. You can always check out our more than 550 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice. Thought leaders on the front lines of the clean energy revolution over at mysuncast.com. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another 
powerful conversation here on Suncast. Michael, we are definitely going to get into exactly how you found your way into renewables, but I've very recently begun opening podcast interviews in a slightly different way than you might be familiar. I know that you're a longtime listener. I'm appreciative of that. I want to hear from you how you presently are thinking about, and you've had a lot of time to see, sort of take a purview of the clean energy sector. How would you explain to my you know, 11-year-old engineer-minded son the problem that you are trying to solve in the marketplace right now? That's a, that's a good question, Nico. And it, it's broad, but it's clear for both commercial and social issues that there needs to be a transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. The price is right, so it makes sense there. The social issues are pretty big. I mean, we can debate about climate change, but things are definitely happening. Climate refugees are going to be more and more of a problem as we go along. So that transition's underway. Mm-hmm. When we talk about renewable energy, we're talking mostly solar and uh, wind. My involvement is mostly in solar since I've been uh, involved in um, the structures and trackers for since 2010. The issue, though, is beyond just trackers or even solar. There's, there's three major issues in order to do that transition, and that is uh, we need to solve intermittency. What happens when the sun is down and the wind doesn't blow? We need to solve transmission. How do you, how do you move all this energy from such remote sites to, uh, to the people and manufacturing plants that need to use the energy? Mm-hmm. And, and one that never gets talked about is how do you retire these assets? These are mm-hmm. productive assets. It's such a huge financial issue. And so you ask how I'm involved. I'm involved in all these pieces in some way, but you know I'm certainly focused on the solar structure piece, but also in solving those other three major issues. I love it. Michael, you have such a breadth of experience in the industry that over a period of time that is significant, you have been able to see how the market has evolved and how manufacturers and developers have evolved to address the current market needs. I'd love to hear what, what are the things that you see most challenging for utility scale developers right now and what are the options that they have available to solve them? What are some of those things that stand out for you? Well, we're still suffering a little bit from the uh, module issues of last year. And so the modules are changing too much if they can even get them. And so on the tracker side, on the structure side, the flexibility to move modules in and out are certainly a, a, a big issue right now. And so that's holding up projects, that's taking more time in engineering, and that's, that's a big issue. Another issue is uh, lead time. As uh, logistics is getting more complicated, uh, different parts of the world are having supply issues. Some uh, structures are taking uh, double what they were doing like a year or two ago. And so that's too long for some, mm-hmm. some vendors. And so having a vendor that could get something to the site, you know, three months, four months is, is really important in order to make all the dates that the developers are committed to already. And also the dates with the rest of their vendors, the EPCs and others. So that's, that's actually a really big issue. We're seeing more and more sites that are undulating or, you know, wavy uh, sites versus the big box sites. The days of the perfect flat 100 plus acre sites, maybe (laughs) in our rearview mirror. Yeah, well, they're certainly down. So to have a product that could handle uh, those type of sites is increasingly important. And so every year from now on, that's going to be a bigger issue. And to do that at a price that makes sense is 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 really challenging. We just have this, um, you know, the IRA come out with prevailing wages and domestic content. So the domestic content's an obvious one, right? To have products that can be uh, qualified um, is is hugely important. That's a ten percent bump on the uh, on the um, uh, tax incentive. Uh, the more challenging one is prevailing wages, and some states always have these prevailing wages. But you know, the uh, rate of installation, whatever brings labor down, has become more important, and it was always important. And so, 
installation time, automation. We're seeing lots of automation going on and, um, you know, unique ways of handling cabling and, and other parts of the system have become, you know, critical and actually strategic advantages if you can build it in. Michael, I think there are probably a lot of, of rabbit trails we'll follow because you have such a varied background and it's a really fascinating story. So I'd like to take a, a chance to back up a minute and touch on sort of who you are, where you come from. Could you talk a little bit about your upbringing? Were you from a close-knit friendly family? Where were you raised? And were there any early signs of this entrepreneurial and particularly strong sales and leadership qualities in you as a as a young teen? Well, I grew up in New Jersey. I think I still have an accent. And uh, <laughs> hadn't noticed. <laughs> um, my father owned um, a number of retail stores. My uncle, you know, also had retail stores. And another one was president of a kind of famous uh, Japanese company. But most people in my family are lawyers and doctors. And when I first got out of college and worked for uh, a computer company, NCR, everybody said, oh, well, all right, try it, but you're, you may not like it. <laughs> but I had a computer degree. It's tough to just start up a, you know, a lawyer or a doctor thing. So, um, you know, I, I did that. I um, I moved to, um, as a consultant for TJ Maxx, you know, everybody's heard of it today, but back back then they had like 50 stores, maybe, you know, and so... I was part of a, a team of four consultants that built an entire distribution system from soup to nuts. So while I'm there, you know, I knew Max Feldman and, and his T and J, the kids. And actually, this is crazy. I saved his life one day. You saved his life. I saved his life because his office was uh, on top of an overhang, you know, for rain. Uh, and mm. that's where he had put his office. An overhang like over a driveway or something? Over the entrance to his building. He had put he put his office on top of that. And so I uh, knock on his door and I go, hey, Max, I got to show you something. And so he walks out. And as soon as he walks out, a truck goes right through his office (laughs) because it was the overhang was too low. (laughs) So (laughs) it wasn't an over it was overhang over a driveway, not a freeway. Yeah, no, it was, it, was just, it, was, it was like, you know, you enter like, you know, yeah. hotels usually have those overhangs. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's, so. a, that's hilarious. So you saved <laughs> Max's life of TJ Maxx, the, yeah, the, yeah. the retail box store. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> so, you know, that was a f- fantastically successful system we put together. They went from mm. like 50 stores to 800 stores in like two years. Darling of Wall Street, all that stuff. Shows you what really automation, we we did things there for the first time. And, you know, something about doing things for the first time is you don't really know you're doing things for the first time. Right. And and we did. And it turned out that uh, the software and the advantages and things like that went on for many years. Marshalls, they bought Marshalls eventually. So TJ Maxx owned the Marshalls? Uh, they do now. But at right. that time, you can get $1,000 if you can get someone from Marshalls to, to go to TJ or vice versa. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they were across great. the street from each other. Yeah. I had exposure to uh, smaller computers, which, you know, we call laptops today. And I became very good at that. And so I started my own business to uh, deploy systems. And I deploy systems for a guy who, uh, a good-sized company, that shaved crystals for radios, another mm. one who cleaned windows and big buildings. And then one day um, I get a call at nine o'clock in the morning to um, go to uh, AT&T. And so I figured, well, double my rate and let's go. So uh, <laughs> I got there and um, then I got home at eight o'clock a.m. The, the next morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had split up uh, AT&T. And uh, they had a lot of legal requirements from uh, uh, the uh, federal government, and they needed reports done. And so I, like in four days, put out reports on their $6 billion other carrier market, like MCI and some others. Right. And so um, that was uh, that was my AT&T. I stayed there for four years implementing all sorts of systems. So I learned a technique called screen scraping. And so I would take a mainframe program, and then I'd take a second mainframe program, and then I'd have a Unix box in between, and I would clean the data for, for big systems. 
for AT&T originally. They taught me to do that at Bell Labs, where I would go into this room, like way in the back. Hmm. 20 years later, I talked to, I, I bump into the guy who ran that little lab. And he said, Mike, whenever you got there, he goes, we had to clean up. That's why you always had to wait. Because we were doing work with the CIA. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I had no idea. So I moved awesome. on to New York doing some, some more screen scraping after that. Yeah. So the, the days of uh, the early and, uh, and then late 90s and early 2000s, you rode the, uh, the computer, personal computing and dot com boom. Could you talk about how you were appointed director of science and technology for the state of New Mexico where you reside? So I moved from New Jersey to Taos and I met some people from uh, Los Alamos Labs and I had great discussions and I was helping them with some telecommunication uh, work. And they sat me down one day and they said, uh, Bill Richardson wants a new uh, head of science and technology. And so I, uh, I met him and some of the other secretaries and they said, you know, we have only had technical people at this pro- at this job and we don't want technical people here anymore we want commercial people so we we don't really know what you're going to do but we want to create business and so um i was appointed uh late 2003 i think as the head of science and tech for new mexico it should be noted bill richardson for those not list- not familiar is mm. was the head of the department of energy under the clinton administration yeah that's a good point yep. <laughs> And uh, I, I started up a lot of the, you know, was involved in some of the portfolio standards, some of the early economic developments and the building of clusters in uh, New Mexico. So it was a nice ride. I learned a lot. And that's what got me into solar. Talk to me about that. How did that specifically get you into solar? I mean, Sandia Labs has a, a great heritage of solar research, but can you talk a bit about the revelation for you that not only was climate change something that was imminent and real, but that there was something we can and should do about it. And that solar energy was something that you could put your skills to work in. You know, you go back to 2005, 2006, solar was uh, deployments were pretty much in their infancy. I led a lot of state-run groups to promote solar and the government was willing to, uh, you know, invest, but what was it going to invest into? I was also part of the Western Governors Association, where we were figuring out, you know, who's doing what and what kind of um, portfolios each state could uh, put together. So I got introduced to a lot of the very early pioneers um, from Sandia Labs, from, um, oh gosh, some, some of these companies, BP, or yeah, BP and Sharp, a lot of people from Sharp. There was a lot of concentrated solar back then. So it was a lot of those guys were still in the business. So I got in tight with that and I learned a lot about solar and who's who. Governor Richardson ran against uh, Obama in the primaries in 2008. And the year before he was setting it up and uh, the government had slowed down. You know, he, he didn't want to take any chances or anything. So I moved on. I moved on to a company in Michigan that was building structures. And that led me to how do you move the structure? And that's what led me to P4Q and Bilbao, Spain. So I, I started there in 2010. And that's when we solved a lot of those uh, issues that we talked about, the, the wireless um, you know, controllers and different cleaning uh, methods and sensors on controllers and things like that. I'll note that it's the same Bill Richardson who was at the Department of Energy, who then became governor of New Mexico, the Governor Richardson that you referred to. Just to connect the dots for folks who are still uh, who, are, who are listening and maybe don't know the New Mexico history or <laughs> or the uh, or the '90s pol- political scene. Michael, you have access to all the technologists, all the lab insights that go along with being near, you know, famously Sandia and Los Alamos, uh, two of the most famous national labs. You're working with close government officials. You have such deep experience in seeing not one, but two industries scale prior to renewables. And I ask myself, how did you make the decision specifically that P4Q was the right next step? I think a lot of folks struggle with that. They've got a sea of opportunity. 
They've got great credentials. They've got access to a lot of different opportunities. What pulled the, like what triggered that that decision for you? Well, I was uh, first at a uh, a company in Michigan that did satellite dishes. It mm-hmm. was actually owned by Cobham, which is a big English company. Yeah. They uh, do a lot of aeronautics. And, you know, we started building structures, you know, that, and the structure needed a, a controller to move. Mm-hmm. And I looked around the world, and there was only one solar tracking controller in the world mm-hmm. that you could buy. Amazing. And that was P4Q in, in Bilbao, Spain. And so I created a, a really good relationship there. And they wanted to enter the U.S. market. And I wanted to move that device because, you know, I have that, all that programming background and thinking. And so I was able to um, bring that to uh, the tracker world. Yeah. I think what's fascinating about P4Q is that they are like the Intel inside for the tracker industry right now. (laughs) They also, not coincidentally, had their own tracker, the SunTrack. It's it's one that many in Europe and many of us OGs in the industry would recognize, uh, but doesn't have a penetration in the market in the U.S. hardly at all, save the the brains of the architecture. And I think it's really interesting to think about the underlying architecture. It's the equivalent of selling pickaxes instead of going and mining for yourself, right? It's selling blue jeans to the miners instead of uh, trying to go in and find the gold. That's one of the things that I think P4Q is one of those companies that did that really effectively. So I just wanted to to highlight that. I don't know if you have any other anecdotes around that, but you were sitting at the heart of when the tracker industry was literally ready to, you know, parabolically explode. Next tracker was in its infancy. ArrayTech was effectively the only in the U.S. market, the only real utility scale tracker available. And it was because everyone was doing it in-house, as I understand. Everyone was doing in-house, this whole controller idea. There wasn't a sharing. There wasn't a, a core ar- architecture that folks could uh, could utilize. Yeah. Opal was probably the biggest uh, at that time. It was a company in Connecticut that uh, oh, eventually sold their products to Solar Flex Rack. Ah. And that's how Solar Flex Rack uh, got started. No, from Northern Manufacturing. <laughs> yes. One of the big, yeah. one of the big steel, steel companies. Exactly. Hey, family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast, moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations, our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia, to green hydrogen, to crypto, and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and You've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Heck, Solve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Michael, as so many of us who've been in this industry for a long time or any industry for a long time, tend to do, we have many interests and we end up being offered opportunities or creating opportunities because we can connect the dots. There's the pattern matching of what is happening in the world and how we can connect ideas from different industries, different segments, 
one such opportunity I understand came to you that is not PV hardware, but is a little tangential. It helps to address how to retire those existing productive assets, the third major issue you mentioned before. Can you talk to me about how you got into this company, Breeze? Sure. So here in New Mexico, from time to time, I get involved in economic development or some some project. And so our local state representative, who actually today is a congresswoman, she uh, put myself and others into a committee to put some recommendations to the governor. And uh, the fellow I worked with was uh, the head of technology for Sandia Labs for 25, 20, 25 years. And so during this process, he invites me to lunch and we sit down and he's got like, you know, a foot of paper or something on the table, very technical. And then he says, you know, I know you're in solar. I'm part of a group of scientists. It's not a formal organization, but it's the smartest people in the world. And, uh, you know, that's from engineering (laughs) or science, probably science. He says, we've looked at wind and solar and while we need it, we don't think it's going to move fast enough to really save the world. He goes, not only we always talk about what happens, you know, when we go to 1.5 degrees C and and then there's no turning back. You, mm-hmm. you, we have to solve whatever problems come after that. And, and the world is on its way to that. But people don't talk about what happens after that if nothing is changed. And if you hit four degrees C, it becomes unspeakable horror. I mean, and, and we were looking at, you know, reasonable research that says that at some point rain stops. So it becomes an extinction event. You know, this is really serious stuff we're in. So he said, what we think is going to work is compressed air. And so we don't know how that's going to work, but we know it will work. And so we've collectively have done this much research. Here's the 12, you know, the, the foot of paper. And he shoves it to me and he says, Maybe you could figure it out. <laughs> so go ahead and make a business. And so I said, okay. And I looked at the research and I found uh, kind of the one of the leaders in what they call compressed air energy systems in London. So just so happened to be going to London. And so we met. And so I started helping and, and uh, advising this company on compressed air energy system where they build a salt mine and then they fill it with compressed air and then they release it, and then they move a turbine without fossil fuels or water, which is really the goal. It's the goal because 25% in the U.S. of all greenhouse gases come from the generation of electricity, and 45% of all the water used in the United States comes from the generation of electricity. You look at Lake Mead, and you shouldn't wonder why. You got Las Vegas and all the lights there. Yeah. So um, I tried, but, you know, there aren't many salt mines like all over the place. (laughs) So it's a real big issue. Uh, At the same time in my solar life, you know, meeting a lot of um, oil and gas people. And I don't know if you knew, but um, uh, the oil and gas industry is the primary use of compressed air to move gas and oil. I did not know that. Down pipelines. So they know this stuff. and so was working with a group in Canada, and we thought in this one meeting, why don't we put compressed air in pipelines instead of gas or oil? Yeah. And for those pipes that go to existing power plants, we just release the compressed air and move the turbines. You don't need the gas. You don't need the water. You just blow the turbines forward. Or you can just buy an expander in the turbine and terminate any pipe and just spin the turbines. Mm. And so we thought that probably had some legs to it. And so it took us about a year to do a lot of analysis work because you've got to get numbers on something like this because the key item is um, efficiency. So if you're you know, not sufficient efficient, then this is a bad solution. But it turned out that when you compress air, there's a rule of gas. When you compress air, you create heat. When you release air, you create cold. And so when we were releasing the air, we were releasing minus 100C, which would uh, freeze a turbine. But right. you can save the compression air, okay, save that heat, and then you use a little bit of it to warm up uh, when you release your 
kind of okay. And because of all that, you can get a 60 to 70% efficiency, which is pretty good. And you don't have to release air from pipelines until you need it. So 200 miles of pipeline pulls 650 megawatt hours of energy at 30 inches of diameter. And that's, that's a good hunk of energy. That's a good 200 amount. 200 miles of six inch pipeline holds 650 megawatt hours of energy? 30 inch, 30, oh, inch, 30, inch. 30 inch diameter pipeline. Right. Holds 650 megawatt hours. Uh, is 30 inch diameter pipeline the most common pipeline? Uh, there's two types of pipelines. There's um, distribution pipelines, which will be 18 inches, maybe down to six or four. Mm-hmm. Your house probably has four or six. And then there's the main lines. The main lines are kind of in the 30s to, I think it goes to 45 inch. And, uh, you know, you can go bigger if you had to. Yeah. But that's kind of what's out there already. There's 3 million pi- miles of pipeline in the U.S. and 25% are idle at any given point. And as renewable energy comes on, that should go down. It should go higher. I mean, it should go from 25 to 35 or, you know, it should increase. So this may sound like semantics, but I'm trying to understand the math. 3 million pipe, miles of pipelines. Is that an aggregate, aggregate distribution and mainline? Yes. Okay. And can you store... So you're suggesting that you can store air in any of these pipelines. Are they all, you know, one of the things I learned in the hydrogen series is that not all pipelines are created equal. Not all gases or molecules sort of exist in those pipelines the same. Like you have to retrofit those existing pipelines to introduce hydrogen to them, something that is also being considered. How does this compressed air solution work in the smaller pipelines versus the bigger ones? It's challenged for one reason, but the solution is becoming... Uh, available. And it's challenged because most turbines are made for power plants. Mm-hmm. And so if you take a big, a big uh, turbine and you, you don't put enough air into it, it it's uh, not efficient. But now we're, there's a lot of new turbines hitting the market and we're using them, those. And so it's becoming more and more efficient. Yeah. It's just uh, 18 inches or six inches, you know, you, you're limited on the amount of air you're going to be serving. So, you know, using. And you have to have some form of compression or on, on each end of the system. Can you help me understand the architecture? I'm just trying to understand the, if there's a closed loop, how you identify what is available in terms of pipeline that is usable. You mentioned 3 million miles, but not all of that is obviously available for use or, or appropriate. Yeah, 25%. Mm-hmm. So the, there's a couple different types of architecture. It would be nice if your compressors were near your turbines because then the heat's right there. And so uh, we're looking at a, a project, actually, I guess we're starting it, where the compressors and the expander turbines will be co-located at a solar plant. So mm. the solar plant will compress, it'll fill the pipeline, and when you need the power, you release and then... Uh, you'll go through a heat tank and um, move the turbines. And this is at a 60 to 70% efficiency. How does that compare with the alternative for a solar plant of storing that capacity as long duration storage in some other form of flow battery, for example? Well, um, you know, batteries are, are high, higher efficiency, but they last, uh, they're, you know, they don't hold the, they can, the, the, the energy is released. So in a pipeline, you could hold compressed air for months and months, mm. you know, forever, really. But yeah. let's just keep it to months and months. It's the equivalent and, of a water reservoir as long as you don't have – even a water reservoir has evaporation, but uh, yeah. a compressed air doesn't. It really doesn't. And so a battery, most of the batteries they're buying are two- or four-hour batteries, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other advantage, real big advantage of a pipeline is that you can compress and use the air at the same time, where when you're dealing with a battery, you need to, if you're, if you're charging, you cannot actually discharge. So you can't use that battery at the same time. Here you can. How does that work? Well, it's just that if you're a pipeline on one side and you want to off-ramp somewhere along the way, you can just pull the compressed air and start start creating electricity while you're still compressing air at the source 
Yeah, and it doesn't, and it doesn't change the the actual psi of compression. No, and we could honestly, moving a turbine is not a large psi. Those not a large gas, draw. It's it's not the typical. Well, no, the gas plants, uh, the glass gas pipelines are rated at fourteen hundred psi. We could pump in at five hundred or seven hundred, but we can. We all we need is like a hundred. Yeah. And we can move a turbine, which is pretty low. So, what have you what have you estimated that is the addressable market for you use using these twenty five percent of uh, IO pipelines? Well, if you filled them all, and of course, you know, it's one of those. <laughs> if you did everything, but yeah. if you did fill those twenty five percent, you would get five hundred gigawatt hours of power, and and so you could sort of down ramp it anywhere you want to along there. So yeah. pipeline maps, um, you know, in certain areas near every city, there's plenty of pipelines. And the benefit of that is that's close to where people want to use the power. Yeah. Um, there are some long hauls from Texas going to California and things like that. You could fill it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could be used as transmission lines, you know. And Is this and the kind of thing have- that existing cogeneration plants, for example? where pipeline has already been built, they uh, are used as peaker plants, could in some way be retrofitted to now use compressed air. Thus, the idea of retiring that asset is simply just evolving that asset into a new use. Yeah, I mean, we're, if you had a, a power plant, let's say it has eight turbines, mm. we could take one at a time and convert it to just air. Got it. And you could downgrade as your confidence and as your you know, you want to retire, whatever your, you know, uh, time period is. And if you're working at a power plant, you could even do floating PV because there's cooling. Look at all the cooling ponds there, you know? Yeah, I was going to ask, what are the secondary tertiary benefits of uh, of this utilization that you, in addition to just the pure generation from an existing gas plant that's retrofitted? Well, the biggest use of uh, power, electricity, is cooling. And when mm-hmm. we release... We're releasing minus 100, maybe more or less C. Uh, wow. Our air is pretty cold. So we, um, we, can just, we can just take that air and blow it on chillers and yeah. create ice, instant ice. And then you could co- cool data centers, offices. You, know, you have to get the cool air there, so there's kind of a location issue. But if you put data centers next to this, your largest cost, 44% of a data center's uh, power usage is cooling. Yeah. And you could just knock that down. Amazing. Hmm. You could use the heat on the other side for drying. There's a lot of applications for drying in, in uh, you know, food industry, beverage, and even the wood industry. So you can use that hot air. It's pretty hot uh, for industrial I mean, use. It's a fascinating statistic that 40% of data center power is used for cooling. You know, I'm thinking about all the advantages of, of the, I mean, in my mind, it's kind of the idea sex of like the different guests I've had on the show. Like if Sheldon Kimber at Intersect and Rafi Garabedian at Electric uh, Hydrogen are building a power plant and they've partnered with, and they're co-locating it near an existing natural gas facility because they want to inject the hydrogen into the lines. Well, they should also be considering any potential curtailment by having something like Saluna computing on site for batchable computing and then working with Breeze instead to uh, to leverage the existing cogeneration capacity instead of uh, instead of uh, eliminating it or, or doing something else with it. I don't know, man. My, my brain just goes to all these different ways <laughs> that developers have so many really cool tools and at their at their disposal right now, so much more than we had a decade ago. Um, well, yep. the, um, you know, the CapEx is tremendously low because the infrastructure's there. The infrastructure's there. That's right. And, um, you know, well, we figured it's about $44 a kilowatt hour and a battery's, you know, maybe 250 a kilowatt hour. So that's an outrageous difference on cost, too. It is. It's a massive difference. It's, it reminds me that you've had some experience with being able to offer developers an outrageous difference in cost back to the architect days coming from uh, Array Tech, which was one of the more uh, premiums, if you will, positioned 
uh, trackers in the market to Arctech. Developers are facing a lot of challenges. We talked about it a little earlier. You know, I'd love to hear uh, a little bit more about the uh, sort of what you see happening in the marketplace, what PVH is doing differently. You know, you mentioned that having your own manufacturing as a vertically integrated steel supplier makes a difference. Can you talk a bit about the um, that differentiation in the marketplace, what it means for developers from a certainty perspective, from a flexibility perspective? Because, you know, I think a lot, not a lot of folks understand where stuff comes from when, I mean, they do certainly like the procurement folks understand where it's coming from, but as a general, uh, the, you know, developers who are maybe going out and just procuring land, et cetera, and they're trying to wrap their head around, how do I spec product? How do I think about the architecture of my projects? They come across constraints that they don't understand necessarily all the things that are driving it upstream. So talk a little bit about the value of that vertical manufacturing infrastructure. I think I'm going to take it to, you know, there were a lot of events that happened when uh, Russia invited, invaded Ukraine mm. that are unknown but they affected not just solar or renewables, but, um, but it's how we all rebounded, I think, that tells the story. And so um, when, when, when the war started, China was shipping regularly trains across Russia to supply Europe with whatever goods they're supplying. That stopped. Mm. Yep. <laughs> and when that stopped, the shipping industry had a... What, a increased by a third or something like that. I mean, it was, and and that, I'm sure maybe there were other issues, but to me, that's like good enough to be the entire logistics issue. And so yeah. um, this was what, last year? So maybe, uh, I don't know, we're talking March of 22 or something like that. So all of a sudden logistics went crazy and mm. uh, pricing, you know, for a container from China went from uh, 18,000 to 30,000 or something like that big, big changes. And so everybody had to scramble and figure out their solutions. And the other thing that happened, so there's two major events that occurred, was that the largest steel manufacturing plant in Europe was blown up by the Russians. And so now a whole bunch of supply was gone. And that increased the um, commodity price of steel through the roof. And so PVH since they own their own factory, went right at it and and just, you know, started looking really hard, where can I buy low? Mm -hmm. And so as a commodity buyer, they were able to do that. If you don't have your own factory, it becomes a challenge to do that because now you're working with your partners. Yeah. And, you know, your partner may be looking out for you, but there may be, you know, the audio industry and the oil and gas industry right. uses more steel than the solar industry plus gives them a better margin so we're you know solar's not the number one you know in in steel you know right it's number three so pvh rebounded pretty good quick from that and they they bought you know at, at good prices and was able to kind of settle down a little bit ahead of the others on the logistics front pvh has a factory in valencia not not china and so all the problems with China were pretty well insulated. Mm. And so where prices went from 18 to 30, in Spain, it went from like four to 12 or something like that. Right. Not, not such a big jump. Sure. So those sort of things make a big difference, uh, logistics especially. And uh, it forced uh, the other vendors to do some very imaginative mm. thinking and some bought ships and some were bulk shipping and, some ideas like that. And so uh, it wasn't until this whole event happened did not just PVH, but the industry started thinking, all right, how can I get that shipping down? And some of those ideas worked, some were more challenging, but even today that 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 thinking of how do I ship better is is coming in. Um, with the IRA and PVH, there, you know, PVH is, is building a factory in Houston not only for the domestic content, but because that's what they do. There's plants in Saudi Arabia and, and uh, a couple plants in uh, South America also. So it's just a different MO you know, method of operation. Michael, I'm curious, when you think about all of the folks that are trying to get into the, the solar industry, I know that you must have a lot of folks that reach out to you. You've spent yourself a lot of time in, uh, in training 
and helping folks come along the learning curve. Where do you see me and folks in the oil and gas sector or coming out of tech, you know, Twitter and Amazon and others are uh, laying folks off in record rates right now. Where is the knowledge gap? Where's the information gap? What do we need to do as an industry to help folks join us in this clean energy revolution? We are seeing a lot of oil and gas coming into the sector. And I think that they are seeing a lower margin than they were seeing in oil and gas. I think that's an easy call. And so, you know, it's amazing, not just in solar, but in whatever we do in life, we always think the other look at something and go, oh, that's easy. (laughs) And then you start doing it and you lose your shirt and go, oh, maybe it wasn't so easy. Um, We're seeing a lot of that happen right now. Yeah. So there is a lack of, to meet the volumes that are expected in the coming years, there needs to be a workforce with some some level of experience to be able to do this in a good, you know high quality. I mean, there's yeah. no immediate. We're not expecting medium quality in in solar fields. We're expecting high quality. Yeah, and, this is asset infrastructure assets. Yeah, and the developers will send everybody back in the field and said, "I don't care if you lose money. I need high quality. That's what I paid for." So. You know, I, your question was on how to close that gap. I have yet to see really big training centers or anything like that. So I, I'm not I'm not necessarily seeing that as a as a tracker vendor and other tracker vendors. We train for the first couple rows and we'll stay there, you know, but we're not building it. And so that's some training, but but cabling and sequencing and the civil war. I mean. There's just a lot of of sequence and, and events that have to take place to get a high quality site. And so we're seeing a lot of new entrants and they're just going to have to learn. You know, we do need them. What do you feel was essential learning for you as you came up the learning curve to better understand how this sector operates compared with other sectors that you have uh, experienced? Um, you know. Um, the utility industries uh, and uh, has been around for you know if you go back I, I'm going to go back a little bit <laughs> but we've seen three revolutions or some of us have uh, there was this PC revolution that ended up you know distributed but you ended up with a mainframe industry that had to kind of give in mm-hmm. to something new and then we saw a telecommunications where you saw a telecommunications industry having to give in to new new types of, uh, you know, wireless and cable <laughs> and things like that. So now we're seeing a utility industry that's been around for, you know, 100 years or whatever it is, now having to change their source of fuel. And, and I believe it's going to change eventually to some distributed model and and there's a and we're just at the beginning of it. We're well, maybe we're a little bit past the beginning, but we're not that mm-hmm. far in. And there's a lot of new things that have to happen to change the energy market uh, to, to into transition from fossil fuels to you know renewables. But it's a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to change how we get the energy and yeah. what how much of it. And I I mean. I sometimes think that network management is overlooked, but I think there's a huge amount of network management that has to show up in this industry to organize where power goes and how it's used and when it's used. I love the way you outline this, these three sort of key transitions of industries, the utility industry, which has been around for a hundred years, being now the third disruptor or disruption, the PC Revolution really disrupted the mainframe industry. The wireless revolution disrupted the telecom industry. And now the distributed generation or renewables or clean energy, as we say, revolution is disrupting the central utility industry. Yeah. Will Southern, Duke, Con Ed, and all these others uh, be the masters of energy? Um, You know, will it end up that way? I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, um, mm. is an owner of a solar field going to handle that local area? I mean, I think we have a, a journey to go on. Um, it started and it started with the utilities in control. And I think they found that solar or wind, wherever it is, was the best price for whatever solution they were putting together. 
and I think that's going to stay the same, but I, it, there's an opening for all sorts of entrants and we're seeing entrants. So, uh, you know, even, even an EDF and companies from overseas are having operating assets here in the States and it's great. I mean, it all creates competition, competition drives uh, fair pricing and also all sorts of fair practices. So it's all good. It's just, we're on a journey and, and we're at the beginning of it. And it's pretty tough to predict what, how it's going to end up. But um, the problems that need to be solved are clear. And, you know, we talked about intermittency, transmission and others. So these are things that we have to solve along the way for distributed or non-distributed. It's just going to be the way it is. Michael, you've had such a fascinating career. I wonder if you reflect back, were there mentors in along the way who made an indelible impact on the way you think about business or formulation of ideas uh, or just maybe something that you still carry that was advice from a mentor that you'd pass along to listeners now? There's so many people. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. Let's pick a two or three. I'd have to leave energy a little bit. But when I started programming, I, I was just kind of an all over the place guy and, and not very organized. And um, I was I was at uh, NCR and upstate New York. And um, a fellow came to me who had gone through all this training and he said, this is how you think. And I'm like, how I think? He goes, yeah, this is how you think. He goes, first, you initialize. That's how you begin an idea. And then you go through the process. What you going to do? And then you go and you summarize. Like, what do people, what do you want to see out of this thing? I call it IPS today because that's how I think. I mean, it's an amazing process. And maybe it seems obvious, but from a programming point of view, you can't be successful unless you think that way. There's no chance. You're just always going back and forward and back and forward. And so his name is Andy Diamond, and I always give him credit for that because it's created a system of thinking that um, I really needed. And it really organized me and uh, all through a career. Uh, being able to think like that has been a big plus. Initialize, process, summarize. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we could go deeper. Maybe we will at some point. <laughs> how, uh, how to actually put that to work. Because I'm now fascinated with exactly how I might put that to work in my own business or, or life. I think that a key to leadership is also being able to make tough decisions, often sooner or faster than you really want to. Is there an example where you look back on a tough decision that really pushed you out of your comfort zone? How do you deal with that? Ooh. You know, when it comes to decisions, I, I have to talk about Governor Richardson a little bit because I would I asked him that question: How do you make decisions? Mm. And he said uh, he said he learned from President Clinton, so I guess this is pretty high level. He said, "I I'm in a meeting or I'm talking to someone. I got three things on my mind, and I'm thinking." Am I going to say yes? Am I going to say no? Or am I going to say maybe? He goes, and as soon as I get enough information and it, and it becomes obvious, then I, I, I say it and I'm gone. <laughs> then somebody else cleans it up. And, and that's how, and that was the thought process. And the thing about decisions is you, you should make one. You shouldn't sit on it. And that's what I learned ah. from him is that the idea is keep things moving. That's, that's the most important thing. Cause Eh, some you're going to hit right, some you're going to hit wrong. But as long as you keep on moving, that's the most important thing. Because when you stand still, really, you know, that's that's the worst thing. Do you have a morning routine that informs how you structure your day? Well, my mornings are consistent. I have my jasmine earl gray tea <laughs> off of coffee for a couple of years. You know, I, I'm up pretty early. I might put the TV on, but I don't think I'm listening to it. And um, I have a habit of going outside cold or warm or whatever it is. And just, um, you know, you want to call greet the day. Um, okay. I, I, I do that. I, I had a habit and I still do this uh, a bit is, you know, go into a hot tub early in the morning. Yeah. And I leave when the first bird sings. <laughs> and that, that was kind of, a, that's kind of a nice way to start the day too. I know that you... You have a well of experience and great exposure to the industry. And I'm curious, for those who are just trying to figure out where to get information, where might you point them? Where do you, on a daily basis, in your daily routine, look for alpha? Where do you look for information in the industry to get, to get smarter and, and sharpen the saw? So I get a number of those um, 
summary reports, you know, mm -hmm. from magazines and, and places like that. So mm -hmm. can you give me some examples? Yeah, I take a look at, at PV Energy, uh, North America Clean Energy. Um, I like Renewable. What's it? Renewable News, I think, is, is pretty good. Do you get those in your inbox, like email newsletters? I do, and mm -hmm. uh, I find it I find it valuable. Uh, yeah. You know, not just in my region, but it gives me a global view, and it's important to know a global view in our yeah. business um, because it affects, uh, affects so much. Michael? I know that there are going to be a number of folks who want to dig in, learn more, understand better how they could potentially leverage the 25% of untapped capacity of uh, pipeline, if not uh, directly talk to you about PB hardware or how to sort of get get your extract more information from your brain, as I've been able to do for the last uh, hour plus. How do you like to be found? How can folks best engage with you? The website Breeze was taken as a website, mm -hmm. but not as the name of a company. So we named it Breeze Squeeze. Breeze Squeeze, like lemon squeeze, yeah. Well, the, the air is obviously squeeze. squeezing the air, yeah. <laughs> so BreezeSqueeze.com uh, will will get us, and um, you can message me from there. It's probably the easiest thing. Yeah, and I know you're on LinkedIn. We'll link to your LinkedIn account there for folks to connect with you directly. Yeah. Let's end today with a bold prediction. Michael, what do you believe is the linchpin problem that we will solve to get us to a decarbonized grid in, by 2050? What's holding us back? Well, I think the money's all there. I think long duration storage is kind of the, the missing piece uh, because if it's done smartly, it could also be transmission. Um, that's why we're hoping with our tubes, but there's some other technologies out there also. But I think long duration is uh, is what what needs to be solved uh, maybe the most uh, right now because it solves all those all the big issues yeah uh, on transmit on transition mm -hmm. where to put that power when it can't be put on the grid we're going to generate it we're going to generate it cheaply as as close to free as possible and uh, how do we store it and deploy it at will when we get there uh, our ability to uh, manufacture uh, at scale and cheaply, our ability to re-architect the, the world around us is really limitless. Exactly. Michael Orshan is the Vice President of U.S. Sales for PV Hardware in North America. And he's also a board member and co-founder of Breeze, which you can learn more about at breezesqueeze.com. We'll link to how you can connect with him, as I've said before, over at the website, mysuncast.com. Stick around for a few more minutes and you'll hear all the details about how to find that. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day and week to come join us here on Suncast. It has been such a pleasure. I look forward to doing it again. Thank you. All right, Solar Warrior. Wow, there are so many fascinating approaches to getting us to a place where we can avoid no rain, avoid a scenario of four centigrade increase in temperature, a unspeakable horror, as Michael said. I was riveted listening to his stories, not just about the all-night interview at AT&T and the near-death experience of the founder of TJ Maxx, but as well, how he came up with novel ideas like Breeze to solve the clean energy transition with existing infrastructure. Michael, thank you for taking time to join us on Suncast. It truly is a joy to chat with you. Pleasure to get to know you. Thanks to Mike Casey for making that introduction. And if you, listener, have someone that you think should be on Suncast, I welcome the introductions. Many of the guests who've been on the show are because you have brought them onto the show. You've brought them to my attention, made introductions directly, which you can do, nico at mysuncast.com. You can also use that email to just reach out and connect with me. Another way to connect is on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn pretty regularly. Comment connect with me, direct message me. I'd love to know, why are you listening? What are you getting out of this? How could I be doing this better for you? If you are eager to keep learning, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every single other discussion, more than 550 of them, along with all our social media links, resource recommendations, and so much more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. If you'd like to join our community and be a part of this vast network that I've been able to cobble together over an 18 year industry building career. 
in solar and clean energy, well, we welcome you into Resource Labs. You can find out more about Resource Labs by going to resourcelabs.co. That's our community. It's how you can find so much more content than just Suncast and join the revolution. We are here to equip you and inspire you. And we're grateful that you're here to listen. If you would like to help us keep this show free to others, well, you could join those who are sponsoring this show, as you've no doubt heard through this episode, to help make this content free. We do that in the form of sponsors and advertisers. Thank you for listening to their ads. Please go take action on the things that you've heard that compel or, or spark interest in you. You can learn more about our sponsors and how you could partner with us to help the Suncast tribe and reach thousands just like them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.